0: Welcome to the News Face Podcast. I'm your host Johnny Vedmore, and I'm here today with Courtney Turner. Hello,
1: hello. How are you? <laughs> it's really
0: good that we've made the connection. I'm sure that um, uh, people who listen to this podcast who have already like come across your work will have said, "Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense." <laughs> because you're, <laughs> you're you're obviously into history in a big way, aren't you? So, so yeah. first of all, so I don't butcher things because you've got uh, more than one project going on. What is it uh, that you do? You explain what you're doing at the moment and and who it is you are in short form, and then we'll explore further.
1: All right. Uh. Well, how how do I do that in short form? I do kind of a lot of things. So the main one is the Courtney Turner podcast, and that mm-hmm. is spelled like Courtenay. Um. Yeah, I told my dad. I love
0: that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it when I have to keep checking a name constantly (laughs) to make sure. I'm so tab, I always mix up E's and A's and I don't do it with your name. So that's all right.
1: There we go. Yeah, I actually told my dad when I was in nursery school that he taught me how to spell my name wrong. And he said, no, you spell it the French way. And I said, but daddy, we're not French. And he said, it's prettier (laughs) that way. So that's the way you spell it. It is true. true.
0: It's prettier that way. So Courtney Turner podcast Today,
1: Turner, yes Courtney Turner podcast so that's the main one I started it in uh 2021 uh like right in the beginning of 2021 and uh the the short version is essentially that I was in Santa Monica California where the measures were very draconian everybody was wearing a face mask mm-hmm. and I'm hearing impaired I actually learned how to speak by reading lips I didn't get hearing aids. I do wear bilateral hearing aids now, but I didn't get them until I was almost six years old. So Mm. I didn't realize how much I still depend on all those nonverbal cues and uh, reading lips for clarity of speech until all the coping mechanisms I spent my life developing Mm. were then stripped Mm. from me. Um, So I found myself just really, really depressed and isolated. I was previously a... um, I was a CrossFit coach and I was doing, I do, I'm an aerial acrobatic performer. So I was doing aerial acrobatic performances, but I was also uh, speaking with those performances. So my speeches were mostly centered around, I, I don't need to, you know, wax poetic about the value of, you know, physical training. I think we all know about the physiological, the cognitive, even psychological benefits. But what I really talked about was a movement as a metaphor for life. So more of a philosophical kind of premise. And I talked about ways that we can use uh, physical training to overcome adversity in other areas of life. And because of my unique birth story, uh, my parents actually sued for my birth. I was considered the wrongful birth case and oh, they
0: wow told me- <laughs> how does that how, how does internalizing that go for you <laughs> That's a, you know, that's it's a word. it's so interesting
1: it? I never thought about it really until like I, I didn't really think about the impact of that and what that meant until I tried out for American Ninja Warrior and it was the first time I had shared my story personally like publicly on camera and my trainer said to me he said Courtney do you realize your parents sued for your birth And (laughs) I I never thought of it that way. And just to be fair. That's really
0: good that you you didn't think of it that way suggests to me that you had very lovely parents.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, my parents had always framed it that, you know, it was the angle that the lawyers took because they knew I was going to deal with Mm. medical physiological challenges for the rest of my life so it was really kind of the way that they because the the argument was that the doctor was dyslexic and he read the titer incorrectly but if he had read it he read it as 112 had he read it as 121 my parents would have aborted me so that was the argument but I I, you know I never questioned that my parents loved me or that they were sorry Mm -hmm. they had me it was never you know, brought to my mm-hmm. attention in that kind of a light. So uh, it was very interesting when he said that to me. And it, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I guess they did. They they sued mm-hmm. for my birth. Um, and it was interestingly enough, it was the same lawyer as the Larry Flint Hustler free speech case. Oh, wow. At the same time. <laughs> so we were clearly not priority for him. But yeah, so now everyone knows how old I am too. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so uh, it was, so when I was training for, uh American Ninja Warrior and I had uh you know that was the first time I really publicly uh shared my story but it was through that that I actually discovered silks and aerial arts because I have very small hands Mm -hmm. and uh so in order to be able to use a lot of grip strength and so in order to compensate for lack of surface area I needed to build more strength more grip strength I saw that as being a really fun way to do it so I used to do the performances, and I would speak about, you know, movement as a metaphor for life, and physiological training, and my birth story, um, you know, I and the, the cliff notes on the birth story is that I am blind in one eye, I am bilaterally hearing impaired, I was had heart surgery when I was one years old, I was born with hypotonic limbs, so for those who are not familiar with hypotonia, is the opposite of hypertrophy, so when the bros go to the gym, like, try and build muscle, it's the opposite of that, my the neuromuscular connection was not uh firing and therefore my muscles were not developing so I couldn't mm-hmm. turn over in the crib, lift my head, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um and uh asymmetrical bone development, fine graphic motor impairment, stunted growth, or all these challenges. They told my mom Whoa, the
0: that's like a couple
1: of <laughs> challenges. <there. laughs> yeah. That's amazing.
0: And so they the, told the-
1: Thank you. So they told my mom that she could hope is find a nice institution for me to spend my life. So really, that's what I focused on in my uh, speeches was that, you know, people often think about, you know, movement and training in a very physical capacity or psychologically, or even cognitively, there's lots of uh you know uh, research that indicates that it is a uh, mitigates cognitive decline but people don't typically i think with the exception of maybe Bruce Lee they don't typically think of it philosophically and for me it really was such a teacher for because i i mean none of us face none of us uh, avert adverse in life but i was certainly faced with uh, a large uh, a quantity of it you know mm-hmm. from very early on and so i recognized how that training would teach me I can do hard things and I can overcome challenges. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I would do. So all this to say that all of my events got shut down. Uh, I got fired from both of the gyms I was working at. Uh, I can't prove it, but I'm 99.999 repeating Uh, (laughs) percent sure that it was due to politics. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I was fired from both my gyms and all of the speaking and performing uh e- events that I had were canceled in 2020. Wow. And I found myself very depressed, very lonely, isolated. Mm-hmm. I couldn't communicate with people because everybody's wearing a mask. And a bunch of people, I started speaking out on social media. So I remember the first day of uh, the lockdowns, I actually thought, oh, this is a great time to write. And so many people had said I should write my 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 story, you know, and I should write it all mm-hmm. out. And so I sat down with the intention to write and at the end of 10 hours, I found a beautiful white screen staring back at me and I realized this is not going so well. <laughs> so okay. I uh, I know enough about the creative process. I was like, I can't force this. I'm too anxious. I'm too depressed. I'm going to take a little breather. Mm. I ordered 11 books that night. I was like, you know, I don't have time to write, but I have time to read. So and I never get time to read. So I'm going to take a little time to read. So I I started reading and then I found myself wanting to talk to people about all these things that I read and after chewing my mom's ear off daily and she was very polite but you know she I I I couldn't spend the rest of my life you know chewing my mom's ear off so I I started posting on social media and most of it was really just going back to my roots of philosophy, psychology, stuff that I really hadn't had the time to dive into because I uh, because I was working, you know, and I just really didn't have that kind of time. And so I started diving into that and I started sharing some of that, as well as some articles, journals that I was reading in respect to what was going on with the quote-unquote virus that, you know, they were fear-mongering us with. And what I found was I was getting so much pushback and things that I never expected to be contentious, uh, people really argued with me about <laughs> And I found it so bizarre. I was like, yeah, uh, COVID
0: was crazy. It was crazy. Eh? It was really crazy. Wild like, arguments that are full of fallacies, but people are holding on to them and, and closing their eyes, closing their eyes.
1: And it was so strange to me. I mean, it was really just things that I thought were just common sense or things that I thought were just not like you know, that wouldn't trigger people. I mean, a lot of the philosophy and psychology stuff I posted did not expect people to have such a strong reaction to. But what I realized is that your worldview kind of seeps through everything you do. And I think that's what people were resisting. You know, it was, okay, this is a, you know, a divergent thinker. This is someone who is not towing the mainstream narrative. And even in fields that I didn't expect to be, uh contentious or you know oppositional that was the stance people were taking with me all this to not very uh you know very long story not so short um but all this to say that people had started suggesting that I start a podcast and yet I had no idea what podcast was initially and I I know it's very embarrassing to say somebody actually and this is how (laughs) embarrassing it was because somebody suggested when they heard of my birth story they were like you need to be on Rogan and my response was what's a Rogan? Why do I need to be on
0: it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I I have since learned who Joe Rogan is and understand why why they thought that um, and why he's seminal to the podcasting world. But I didn't know at the time. So I started listening to podcasts and diving down you know, the rabbit hole, mostly of like the intellectual dark web. I had been reading. Oh,
0: this- that's a really oh, yeah. interesting. Now we could talk about that for a bit because I went really deep and dark into that. Yeah, go on. Anyway. And
1: dark, I imagine, right? I jo-
0: Jordan, to- Jordan Peterson follows me.
1: Does he? You what? told me that. I'm what so... What the fuck?
0: I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. It scares me. It scares me.
1: It scared you.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's I'm like so- I got a mark and let us mark his door. Ha! We will return for this one. (laughs) It's something along those lines. (laughs) I'm
1: so curious about that. Yeah, so I started, it was Roger Scruton who turned me on to, who even made me aware of Jordan Peterson. So I was reading Roger Scruton. And for those who are not familiar with Roger Scruton's work, he's a philosopher, a British philosopher. Uh, He's most known for his work on conservatism. And that was what I started by reading because I was really just fascinated by this political polarization that had occurred, and it's certainly not new, but it was so extreme during COVID. I mean, you know, it was like you held an American flag, and people—I, you know—I live in the states, and you would think that that shouldn't shouldn't be polarizing, but suddenly yeah, people yeah. thought you was like alt-right, like crazy fanatic. there's this feel
0: there's this obvious feeling that there's a loss of liberty happening in every single part of our life and that we go to libertarian circles to try and get the answers for that loss of liberty
1: that's what totally that's another conversation i'd like to have because i think yeah. that's being really attacked right now so i yeah so it was just really fascinating to me so i was reading Scruton, and Scruton is a really fun philosopher because he doesn't just write like on conservatism or political theory or political philosophy he writes about like wine and beauty and you know yeah it's really fun oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so I was just diving down consuming whatever I could because I was bored and it was fun and stimulating and that's where I found Jordan Peterson I became you know uh admittedly a big fan i mean i went like
0: uh, I, like like i i how, how many times did you watch a bible lecture i i i, I think I, I i did the whole series like three times with a couple of them extras and all of you know just they're so they it's almost indulgent like it is they, yeah
1: I, I mean, I read all of his books. I read Maps of Meaning. I watched the whole lecture series on Maps of mm-hmm. Meaning, the personality course twice, the one that he did in, I think, 2014, and then again, 2016, I think. Um, yeah, so I really dove down that rabbit hole and uh, all this to say that I would the idea of starting a podcast terrified me, but then it dawned on me. I had a an epiphany. I was like, I could have naked face conversations and that would be... You know, it might Mm -hmm. save my life, (laughs) Uh, not to be morbid about it, but I really felt that way. I mean, I remember having a conversation with my mom. She kind of like, I don't know how you're going to like parlay this into any kind of business or anything. And I said, I really have no idea, but right now it might just save my life. So I think I'm just going to move forward. And that was really how I saw it, even if it was on a Zoom interface or whatever kind of digital interface, at least I could see people's faces. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time I was going down the block daily to this liquor store because this very nice elderly uh, Chinese man would honor my quote unquote mask exemption, let me take off my mask. And he would take his off because I was hearing impaired, and have a conversation with me.
0: Oh, really, man.
1: it's not oh. like it was so profound, or but daily he would spend at least. No, 20- no,
0: no, no, no. From because from the it may not be profound at the time, but looking back on something like that, you realize how profound it is. Because I, I, I seriously, I, I, Chile was was dark on the mask front and and I looked around and there was there was you know no no one there to stand just on morally if I had to go you know if I had to go through what you've gone through then it's even like that's just compounded so so much I mean I, yeah go on sorry
1: no absolutely I I know everybody felt it you know so I don't mean to make this like you know, That's mean? why I didn't <laughs>
0: complain through COVID because uh, I knew that there was people who had it much worse than me and I was just like okay all of these crap things I was travelling across the world backwards and forwards and they were making me jump through loads of different hoops to be able to do all of this and uh, mm-hmm. and, and the, the depression of it and the sadness and the life was breaking down on all different fronts for everybody I don't think there's a person I knew who didn't lose a relationship or gain some relationship as well Yeah that's you know, true
1: yeah, there were a lot of blessings. Absolutely. So I was I mean, I would go for like, I would go an hour and a half away just so I could go hike on a mountain without being, you know, screamed at by the police, you know, or potentially arrested for not having a mask so I could have a conversation with a friend. Uh, so it was a very dark time. Like that was when I had started the podcast. And since then, I've, I really have five shows. So I have I do a show with the it's called the uh, it, we started something called Pirate Stream Media. Pirate Stream Media is very much still in development because we are seeking funds for Pirate Stream Media. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, but really, the intention behind it is to aggregate the very atomized, alternative, independent mm-hmm. media sphere. And so we do a show there that's called The Dialectical Dissidence. Um because you know, I talk a lot about the Hegelian dialectic. And uh, right. uh one of the guys who we do the show with is uh he's from the last American vagabond, Ryan Christian. And uh, the I other know
0: one, Ryan Christian.
1: You yeah. know Ryan, yeah. And then the other one is uh Scott Armstrong from uh, Rebunk News. And of course right. Ryan's always talking about the two-party illusion, so it kind of ties in with dialectical dissonance. So uh that's we do that show. Um, and then I started a women's roundtable group and Of all the shows I do, that's been the hardest to coordinate with any consistency. Uh, Two two of the women have left, so they don't live locally anymore. Uh, One of them was just tied up with other things. And then I've brought different people in uh, periodically. But it's really important to me that 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 one be in person. I think that it's just, I always say it's like a counter to the view. It really has nothing to do with the view. But it's just, I've wanted there to be different voices Mm -hmm. from women. Mm in the space and i feel like there's really not a lot of women in this i
0: I think i think there's more i think it's really hard to explain i i think there's um only certain people kind of get either in or allowed into this space and we on the independent media see ourselves as being um rightly better than the mainstream media that gives rise to like this ignorant fallacy growing in people's heads of that must mean that I'm are better than everything else, and I'm most important. And then there's individual actors who are really, you know, there's there's a lot of self. There's a lot of people who are ignoring their similarities to the mainstream media and how they act. You know, there there has to be a point where we say, okay, if we're going to make a better media, then we've got to cut certain things out that they do to attack each other, uh, or totally. attack us. Um, yeah, but I I don't I. I think that uh, it 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 takes just a, a little bit of dazzle for people in the independent media to be awestruck, like with some person who, to most, wouldn't be a celebrity, but because of an issue or a stance, yep. uh, is becomes a celebrity, and then of course that then leads to false heroes and all of the rest of
1: Alter it. Alter personalities, right?
0: Yeah. Mm, yeah yeah well I, I see that in the independent uh, media and and i i i don't uh, n- I, I just try and get involved with everybody and hope that i can work it out as i go along um but a structure would be nice if if it could be worked out and i think i i do you know i i i worry about those sort of structures just because of the co-opting of those sort of structures
1: oh i i do too totally yeah, that's yeah. a because i i think I've, I've told you my theory that there's like a counter intel pro operation uh mockingbird occurring essentially mm-hmm. that's and i i i mean i can't prove it but i very much feel it like that's very much okay. I, I, I had i had looked- a
0: conversation with someone just an hour ago um <laughs> or, like off the record where they were yeah. mentioning a big name that i keep hearing over and over and i keep talking about over and over who is funding loads of parts of the main uh the independent media behind the scenes and it's pretty obvious that there is something going on um and when you trace it back it all smells of agency in, in my opinion is you know
1: i'd be so, very curious you don't have to reveal it here but i'd be curious who it is because i i very much oh that.
0: i'm just gonna say it and okay. rfk jr seems to be uh funding different media and it's th- there was one person who was talking to me they were saying they want to create this um i won't say who it is but they they want to create a, a what is basically a blockchain media platform um, i've heard of this yeah yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a couple of different variations of this happening, and they said the only person that they could get any funding from would be RFK Juniors or a uh, uh, fund whatever fund they use that's the only one and it seems they were they were like we don't want it at all because we know what it comes with and i think there's a load of people feeling that there's a co-opting happening so i i i i've been speaking about rfk junior because i watched him come into the independent media and he affected not only my my working life but my private life to an extent um uh, and my personal life um so so i i i am very wary of his presence and it, when it comes down to agencies people say like i say use fallacies all the time and it's really easy to say rfk junior um was uh he, his father and his uncle were killed by the cia so he would never turn to the cia but then there could be another s- side that says well, isn't that exactly why you'd want to bend the knee because you end up being in fear for your life and compromised and they, they've targeted you anyway so um i just see lots of links around him and i keep hearing the same things from people it's not that's not the only person i've heard that from so yeah. i get a feeling that they and and i know that there's a network he's created that looks really like um health the children's health defense and stuff like that you can't argue with it you can't argue with it It, it, it's right everything that's on it is right everything is right so you you want to support you want to think but if someone's lingering in the background you always know that the one moment that can be turned against us all you know and that's what i'm really wary of so i'll I'll, sorry Sorry to interrupt, no, you know.
1: no, no, and uh, children's health defense. I mean, yes, it, it's interesting you say, like, it, it's right, and I, you know, there's so much they do that's good, um, but there's also, you know, like the little because isn't this how, uh, you know, uh, psychological operations and controlled opposition typically works is that it's it's mostly. I would even argue, uh, and I've heard this from people in the military who do psychological operations or who did psychological operation uh, warfare, and they would tell me that it's ninety percent truth, ten percent lie. And I would even argue, and I've I've I them further on this. What they've told me about that ten percent lie is oftentimes it's not even really a lie. It's like an omission. It's a it's a context. You know, it's a blurring of context or taking things out of context or situational, or it's, uh, you know, but it's not necessarily even fully a lie. It's really, but it's enough to steer you astray, and that's why it's so effective. I always use the ice cream cone analogy. Um, So Mm -hmm. I say, like, there's there's the ice cream cone. That's you. It's yummy. You want to eat it. It's, but that's the hook Mm gripping lie. So it's something that hooks you in. It's very enticing, but it's not. It's not factual, it's not true, or it's not uh, contextually true. You know, it's not the, the, tr- and, the real line. And, and if you attack
0: but it, if you attack well, it, you look awful.
1: Totally, but it's the math line action. And then what they do is they put the sprinkles on it, and the sprinkles mm. are the truth. And so it's got all these sprinkles all throughout, and so you keep mm-hmm. keep licking the cone. You're like, oh, well, I love sprinkles. I another, another true, <laughs> yeah. It's more, it's true, it's true. And before you know it, you've eaten this hook hook gripping lie. And I I think that's kind of how it typically works. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm very much seeing. And I I think they're trying to part of what they're doing in the alternative media space is they're using these little uh, cognitive infiltration in old order to splinter. So now you get all these different factions. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, the co-opting, right? The larger that some of these factions grow, the more powerful they are, the more money that's there. You know, there's, I, I think there's a lot of genuine good people who really are just seeking truth and then want to share what they've learned. And, you know, uh hopefully help all of us evolve and weed through this this mess essentially. Uh mm-hmm. but, you know, there's also the reality of just, uh, you know, as you put it, situational pressures, you know, people have they they have their lives to lead, they have mouths to feed. There's just mm-hmm. that that's just part of life. And so and then there are really the so of course they there's pressure put on them. Well if they're if they can make a living and they can, but then there's also just really the grifters. And Mm-hmm. I see a lot of this. There's, and my issue with those people, and the grifters come in two forms. You know, some of them really are just looking for the money, some of them really are looking for validation and fame. And sometimes it goes mm-hmm. hand in hand. But, I, I, and really, it's the narcissists who, you know, it's like they just want to be pat on the back and they want all the attention. And that's not to be un- undermined or ignored because that can very easily be n- manipulated. Mm-hmm. And I, my issue with those people is, you know, it's not that I wish any ill on them. It's just that they take, you know, let them do what they do, but it's that they take a lot of the trust and money out of the space. Mm-hmm. And then for the people who are really trying to do good and, you know, it it, it takes a lot of resources to, to continue mm-hmm. to move forward. Right. So for those people who are genuinely trying to do good and then they try and, uh, you know, build something. There's a lot of trust and money that's been taken out of the space for them. So that's my main issue with it. Um, but, yeah, I'm seeing it. I, I, and it's, it's just as it's hard to ignore, when, especially yeah. when you move around and you've traveled as much as we have, going to all of these different conferences and events, and you just – kind of and because I'm not part of like any big Mm -hmm. entity I kind of sit back and I watch and
0: I you have got to be or I I mean there's so many things when you when you talk about stuff there's so many things we have in common on another level I I I Mm -hmm. can kind of understand the type of person you are because I feel that I'm roughly the same type of person I'm really interested (laughs) I'm really just like I'm outside the group um I I I I didn't have an array of health problems but I kinda did. I had Graves' disease and it was a thyroid disease oh, yeah. and I didn't get diagnosed till I was twenty seven. So I got down to eight stone and I was dying at to end up having radioactive treatment and like have my thyroids chopped out and all. And before that they just misdiagnosed me all the time. So I that the, the shaking I had started when I was like twelve, thirteen and that just continued through and they just kept telling me it was normal and all of the different things was normal, normal. And they would have said totally normal till till Soul yeah. deaf. Um but I feel that we, you we normal have the same... soul deaf,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well I, I feel I feel that we have the same type of like read of people. I think mm-hmm. I think that by what you describe when you sit back and you watch people, that's massively important. And people who are the the, the true grifters, when they mm-hmm. don't know they're being observed, give all of their game away because the grift is really easy to see. You know, it's really easy. I, so I'm I'm like I I really interested to <laughs> to talk more on that. but I'm not sure because I I've had a, a a day yesterday arguing with Kirby Summers, who unblocks me every now and again and shouts at me about something because I am, I wrote an article about her a few years ago where I showed she wasn't who she said she was and, there was lots of lies, and she wasn't a sex slave. She she actually wrote a long blog about how she was a mistress, and she did it for the money, and she liked all the dresses and all of this. And so so she made a lot of money off the Epstein case and selling the story that she was like them, and then and then profited off that. And then when I exposed it, she wasn't very happy with me, of course. And we have a backwards and forwards every now and again, but um, I I find that there has to be a reckoning at some point on the independent media. What do you think that looks like?
1: <laughs> that That's a really interesting question. What does it look like? I, I've i been less focused on like a, a reckoning, so to speak. I've been more focused on trying to elevate the good, authentic people mm. that I see. Uh, you know, like the people who... I, I'm certainly no arbiter of, you know, <laughs> of truth. And I, I can only see what I can see and, you know, trust what I can trust. But I... The, those that I feel are doing genuine, authentic, good work. I I want us to collaborate. I want us to elevate each other. That doesn't necessarily mean we always have to work together. I mean, we can, we can collaborate, but it's also just about, you know, supporting each other uh, because th- that is so much of how this works. Nobody knows anything until they're, they're shown it, you know? So until yeah, yeah, yeah. they're pointed, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know how to make this concrete. It's just like I wouldn't know of somebody's work until there was a way for me to see them, and especially if they're being censored or suppressed or just, you know, they're kind of in the void and in the vortex and you don't have a way of accessing it. So I I, I focus more on that. That to me is I want the good, uh, the people doing good work to be amplified and, uh, you know, independently. Um, that's That's really what I've been focusing on and just trying to shine light and keep moving forward. um i'm i'm a little i don't know if naive is the right word but i just i i genuinely enjoy digging into information and i'm a very curious person
0: no i can tell i was one of my next questions is going to be like you know when when did you start like learning about things like operation mockingbird and being like interested in those sort of things because that's a that's like you know it's it's not traditional type of it, what we do is very traditional it's you have to have of something have had to make you want to go over there you know
1: right um well I, I will say that the cia has always fascinated me and it is in part because they tried to recruit me when i was 7 years old and ah, it... how old <laughs> 7 <laughs>
0: Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> That's serious <laughs> shit, man. These guys. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, like, the narrative has changed as I brought it up with my mom. So, I remember it really well. I actually, you know, I remember the whole experience. I was I was in second grade. And uh, they came in. They, they told me that. Well, they told all of them. They told the class that the police were there. That's what they said. Mm. They called them the police. And <laughs> they said, they're just going to do a skit for you. And uh, I... So I thought that was a little interesting, but I grew up where my mom would always tell me the police are your friends. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, you know, the kind of the the line that I guess they told children at the time. I, I'm not so sure I would share that same narrative with my children, but uh, that that was always what I was taught. Like you wave to the police, and you know mm-hmm. they're your friends; they're there to protect you. And 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 certainly this is not to admonish. You know, I think there are a lot of wonderful police you know people who go there, there's there.
0: a couple i i do police auditing as well so i'll say there's a couple there's well a couple.
1: I, this is what i my experience of it and this is not to make a broad stroke statement because there's always exceptions there's always outliers in every case however i would say that for the most part as a general rule what i've experienced is in rural areas police tend to really be you know good uh honest people who want to protect their communities, the communities they live in. And it's usually communities they've grown up this in. Is
0: a, this is interesting because this is going to be the opposite in France as it is in France. Because in France, the, the, the police that are in the countryside are the most corrupt. They're just all doing everything naughty. They're just running the places all gangster land. And then in the cities are quite, no, they're still assholes, but they're just not as bad as they are in the uh, country. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go on.
1: Uh, No, that's really fascinating. But in the United States, my experience has been in, you know, I've traveled, I've traveled Europe quite a bit, but not enough to have that experience, Um, not enough to know. But in the United States, my experience has been that the city police, typically don't live in the cities that that which i think is actually supposed to be illegal they're supposed to live in the communities that they defend but somehow that doesn't seem to always be the case and they so they don't have the same kind of allegiance the same feeling of and they often didn't grow up in the city that they're you know working in and it just seems to be much more rife with corruption that's been my experience Mm -hmm. but uh but anyhow, I grew up, you know, naively thinking that they're my besties. They're there to protect me. And uh, so they're doing this skit. And I would watch the skit. And I, you know, I, I was very uh, artistic always. And, you know, I, I had actually wanted to be on Broadway. So I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this play that they're going to put on for us. And this will be so fun. And it, the whole experience was odd to me just because of we weren't really sitting and we were in this, like everybody was kind of scattered, you know, it wasn't set up like a theater, you know, it wasn't, okay, the seats are here and this is the stage.
0: You were set up by the CIA. (laughs) It's all over the place.
1: It was all over the place. Yeah. And so I, after this, (laughs) they brought each student to the principal's office and you were supposed to recount what you saw individually. And the narrative I then heard was, you know, that my mom had always told me, Uh, that I wasn't eligible because of my disabilities you know I'm hearing and visually impaired and so I always used to make the joke that my disabilities spared my soul Um, but (laughs) apparently it's not really what happened apparently as I it was in recent years that my mom shared this you know what actually happened and apparently they called and It was interesting just to hear the first time my mom shared it, just knowing the dynamic between my parents, because my mom said typically when it was school matters, you know, because of my challenges, like oftentimes the school did call. So it was usually like, okay, you go handle this, you know, and she said this time my dad stayed and like watched over her and they they called and apparently said, you know, hi, uh, you know, we, your daughter has an eidetic memory. We would like to talk to you about recruiting her. And she's, she, she, I guess, I think she was kind of like confused at first. And (laughs) she said, said, I I don't think she's eligible. You know, she's visually and hearing impaired. And, And they said, okay, that's, you know, that's not a problem. We're, we're very interested. and, she said they really tried to flatter her like they kept telling her "This is very unusual we don't recruit children which is obviously not true i mean we just look at the declassified documents and you know uh all the mk ultra experiments, project monarch i mean we know they recruit children the the remote viewing experiments they did actually a large part was uh primarily focused on children um so it we know it's not true but that's what they told her and uh so they kept persisting and tell, trying to flatter her, tell her it was a huge compliment. But she said the big thing that got her was that they would need to take me away periodically for some time. And yeah. she was like, oh, no, no, we're not doing this. And she said that they, she pretty much had to hang up on them. But what was interesting wow. is that they called for about nine months until they finally stopped persisting. That uh, is
0: unbelievably. Oh, we're just take her away every now and again, you know, <laughs> we're just the CIA, you can trust us, we're not going to do
1: anything wrong, wow. Well, and my parents, I think at the time, you know, really thought the CIA is there to protect us, and, uh, you know, they had a very positive kind of so, impression. So you but... said,
0: how, how did you say it, because I've heard it before, but I did, a, a something memory, you have a something memory.
1: Idetic memory. Idetic. So so it's similar to like a photographic it's a you know like a visual kind of imprint
0: is uh, it one that's developed because of of the necessity
1: i wonder that like that's what i always assumed i don't know though it apparently two percent of all children have it and it's not present in adults and it's slightly different than a photographic memory um but it's it's very similar uh, however, they say that it the adults don't have it because it would stunt their uh, emotional and psychological development because mm. uh, it would be too hard to process everything. So it's typically not retained. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things. I don't know if it was like a necessity because of my uh, sensorial challenges. And so I developed that as a my dad has a really good memory uh so i mean
0: (laughs) i've also got sensorial (laughs) challenges but it's a different type of sensor (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: i don't i don't don't know i mean i did a little bit of research into it because i thought it was interesting um but yeah that was most of what i found is that it it seems to be present in two percent of children uh under so so at
0: some point it went away did you feel it? Did you feel it? Did <laughs> did you feel it?
1: I did. I did feel really? it.
0: Really? Oh my God. Yes, that's such a good question.
1: <laughs> I used to, I, I was never like a very studious person. I was one of those people who was like, if I'm interested in something, I will dive in, but I do not like being told what to do, what to study, mm-hmm. what to. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a very, yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm with awesome. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was never good that way, but if I looked at something, I was pretty sure I could remember it. So when I would be in school, if I would like take a test, for instance, I would go, I would close my eyes and I would picture either, you know, what they wrote on the board or, you know, the page on, I could remember the page, I could see the page and I would see the page number and, you know, I would go through it that way to try and answer the question. Uh, But I did notice as I got older Particularly, I think it stayed with me for the most part, but I would say, like, high school, college, it started to dissipate. I think it stayed with me longer. They say it's, you know, age of 12. Mm. And I guess around 12 was kind of when it was starting to fade. I didn't have that. Kind of, I still, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm told often that I still have a really good memory, um, mm-hmm. but I definitely don't have, like, an eidetic.
0: Kind of yeah, I, 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 I don't know what a good memory is. I, I, I... have <laughs> Sometimes I just remember stuff because it's passion, isn't it? It's more passion that makes me remember. And there's
1: a lot of studies that have been done on that. Like, you know, when there's a yes, heightened emotionality, uh, a heightened sense of passion or emotional experience will uh, strengthen a memory recall.
0: So, so I, I've had a, a a sense that the reason why I like to go back in history so much is because mm-hmm. I grew up in a seventeenth century reenactment society, reenacting the Civil War every weekend, and I was always dressed up in the seventeenth century, um, and with swords and pikes and cannons and muskets and stuff. So, wow. so I had. Yeah, it was 8,000 people as well. So it's not like it's it's, it's a few people on a field. And then Dying. you do battles for charity. Um, I was in the biggest one in the UK, which was the Sealed Knot. And um, it, it, it's basically, my dad had a regiment that was like 250 people. And we every weekend we'd travel. And it's a big party on a campsite. And every Saturday and Sunday, there's a big battle in front of a load of spectators and all the money goes to charity. So it kind of like, works in a nice mood. yeah it's awesome uh, it's just a festival with like yeah. closed off campsite you see your friends all the time you got a big beer tent there there's got like capacity for a couple of thousand and bands playing every night it's, it's a it's a it's a really good way to grow, grow up you grow up in the 17th century but with music and good food and and, and the rest of it like it's a bit strange awesome. well, yeah yeah but but i wonder if that's the reason why i get so uh, passionate about history when i'm going back through history i can connect with it really easily you know i can
1: yeah because can... you had enacted it i i yeah. would imagine so i don't know for me i mean i i woke up really late 2020 was when i woke up i was not somebody who was like you know like my it's, there's
0: stages to waking up though isn't there, there are stages. Ba-
1: well absolutely so this is really interesting because i don't think i would have woken up in 2020 if i hadn't had so many seeds planted earlier
0: mm-hmm. i think
1: that for me there were just personal reasons why i i had too much cognitive dissonance around looking at certain subjects and looking at certain uh issues that were presented mm-hmm. to me and for me i i think a large part of it was uh, i didn't know at the time i mean i thought my dad was like was a conservative that's kind of the the narrative that i was uh bought into but in hindsight my dad was a hardcore neocon and I I really didn't know I don't know that yeah I didn't know that at the time I don't know that I knew even what that meant um but he really he was he was a hardcore uh, neocon and it's really interesting because around like 2016 my mom had said something like you know you're actually much more conservative than your father And I don't think she knew either. Like, I don't think she knew the the term neocon or maybe she did. I, but I I don't think it was that connection that made her say that. Um, But in hindsight, I realized, Oh, it's true because he really was a neocon. Um, and you know, at the time, I really was more of a "quote unquote" conservative. I don't know that that's. Did you how know
0: I'd... much about his like? Did you see much about his politics growing up? Then did you? I yes,
1: mean... I, I did. So I started a board for school choice when I was in sixth grade. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> I, <yes. laughs> uh, I did.
0: Were you working for the CIA? It sounds like a glorious kind of project. That's what it,
1: yeah, it totally is. I realized how duped I was. Now I'm like that was such like a false carrot that was dangled for the conservatives. Uh, you know, it, it's it's totally a uh, a it's it's totally a lie because it's deceptive, rather I should say. It's just people they think it's couched in because they like the words choice and you're going to have freedom, but really you don't have freedom because they're just putting it under another umbrella as a way to entice you. By you know putting financial strings over you. and now what they're doing with school choice is just really atrocious because they're they're trying to put it under the umbrella of private school. So now you, can, can you explain age.
0: for the people in Breton, can you explain school choice because because yeah. I, I there's a lot I can say about a certain period of this I've been investigating recently um but but go on, go on.
1: Yeah, so school choice is this idea. So I'll just give you the context of when I was growing up. I went to, I grew up in a town called Anglewood Cliffs. Now, Anglewood Cliffs didn't have a high school, like it didn't have a public high school, rather. It, there was Anglewood, which was a neighboring town. A and high school it, desert. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was a high school desert. So Anglewood had a high school, at, but Anglewood was... it it was very cliche it was one of those towns that had railroad tracks if you will Mm -hmm. and you know there was the the good and you know not so safe side of the tracks and the school the high school was situated in the less you know less safe less uh less affluent area of Mm -hmm. town and it was literally dangerous for whites i mean there's just no other Mm -hmm. way to really word it um but it was not really safe for anyone you had to go through metal detectors to get to this you know get into school every morning and it was not a great education you know it was very it would
0: be bloody scary i saw it i saw it on movies when i was young (laughs) (laughs) like i i couldn't imagine as a british person like looking at american some american schools back during that period is just so detached from reality it looks like a dystopian environment that we would never accept you know
1: right yeah and we did and so I had there were other neighboring towns where like my friends from nursery school went and my friends from you know dance and gymnastics went and they were just as close I mean in terms of mileage and distance and time to get there so it's like this doesn't make sense to me why can't i choose one of these other public mm. schools why do i have to go to that school mm. and so i created this board for school choice now so the premise behind school choice at the time was that you would be given a voucher and then your parents could choose uh, which school your neighboring school they would want you to go to so you know for instance uh just Uh, People in uh, Britain might not be familiar with this, but people here might hear that the term uh, Tenafly was a neighboring town. I grew up right outside New York City, so it was very close to the George Washington Bridge. Fort Lee is right over the George Washington Bridge. You know, then there's Alpine, Tenafly. They're all kind of right around each other. And the Tenafly was a great school, very high ranking in terms of, you know, quote unquote, test scores and that sort of thing. And so I asked, why couldn't I just go to Tenafly? And of course I was denied. So I started this board for school choice, but this is why I want to impress upon people that it's, it's very deceptive because they use the word choice. A lot of uh, people who might be on the political right, if you will. Uh, and I, I caveat that just because I think that's a false dialectic as well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, Oftentimes it's just the Ouroboros really being fed to us. So, um, but for, for the purposes of this conversation, the people who identify as being on the political right, oftentimes they like hearing these words. We have freedom of choice. We can choose which schools and we can take ownership of the education of our children. These these are all lines that sound wonderful. And so they are selling it to uh, particularly they're really, you know, there's a mass line narrative targeting the, the political right to have free you know to have school choice however what it really is doing and a lot of this is coming through unesco it's being come coming through unesco to uh through the federal and state apparatus and what they're really doing is they're putting school choices under they're expanding the umbrella to private school as well mm. and what's happening now with private school is they're classifying homeschool they're offering, and in I can only speak to Tennessee. I believe it was, a, but they're doing this in many states in the United States. Um, is that they're offering? I think it was eight thousand dollars per child. Don't quote me on that. I, I might have gotten that number wrong, but I think it was eight thousand dollars per child, which for some families is a lot of money. Now that's it, and the you know the premise behind it is that we're we're giving you this money for for books and for supplies and for you know, things that the that student might need so that you can homeschool your child. But what happens now is you're under these this umbrella of private schools through the, the school choice. And now they have power over you because now they can mandate that you do things like wellness checks that may follow the child for the rest of their life. They can require that they have certain injections because you're they're giving you money basically they have leverage over you because you've taken their money and so this narrative of school choice is just it sounds like a great it sounds much it sounds too good to be true and it really it is it's just not what it, it's being sold as you don't really have the same freedom that they would like you yeah. to Yeah, yeah the I, strings I, are I, being pulled so yeah yeah but,
0: think- but that that's all that's always been that's always been the same in that 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 sense that i've well always i go back to uh what what my experience of researching american school systems and how this sort of stuff can be like a, a part of a dynamic i look in mm-hmm. 1970 1971 and mm-hmm. I, when I was studying Stan Pottinger and all of his behaviour around the place, well he was first taken up in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare at parts of the civil, head of civil rights and right. it, he was dealing with the desegregation and then it became uh, during that period there was actually a rise in segregation <laughs> in schools rather than <laughs> because they, they were you know, and there was a lot of course riots, angry people because people suddenly had a reason a societal like factor that said we need to now choose where we we go we want to go out to, and they weren't being allowed but people were being bused for miles and miles to schools all around the place and it just seemed like Chaos galore. I mean, really, reading about that period and what they were doing, it didn't make any sense why they were doing it except to cause the chaos. Why, while, um, to start, you know, to, to take away from all of the other things that were going on at that time, which is like Vietnam War, and and oh, and yeah. uh, I mean, everything was an intelligence operation back then, anyway. During that period, it's just everything's infiltrated and it's just everything's going about to go crazy because they're all, you know, everybody's spying on each other. And- and until Watergate, there's not that, that breakdown of that, you know, there's a the focus, the light on them. And then everybody's like out uh, uh, trying not to look like they were doing anything wrong. But everybody was doing stuff wrong for ages. So, yeah, I went through the 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 I didn't understand. I don't understand the American system, so I don't understand why you wouldn't have. But then I think it's probably this roughly the same now in the UK that and Thank it was you. when I when i was when i was young i went to a school and we were in a catchment area so Mm -hmm. i think you you applied for multiple schools and they sent you to the one that was that was ripe for the catchment area Mm -hmm. um Uh, and but I, i had a choice between uh two schools i think or three schools and um I would have loved to choose I would have loved to chosen the one that was down the road, down the end of my bloody road. But this is literally. This was the um, the line from. I think it was from my father. No, there's too many boat people in that school, <laughs> and you'll be attacked what? by knives, boat people, which is what they were calling um, banana boat. That's what they would say. So it's like Somalis oh. and people who would come over in right. in in uh, abundance when uh, in the early nineties um, were were called boat people and stuff. Um, so right. Uh, and, and so I, I ended up not going to the, the school at the end of the road where most of my friends went. I uh, I had to go like three miles up the road just because of, of some other reason anyway. So it's like often kids don't get to choose this school. On top of it, the American system makes it almost impossible that you have to be forced into this school over here, which is really awful. And yeah, I mean, was, so which area are you talking you're talking. Is this in LA?
1: No, this is right outside New York City. I grew up in oh, New York.
0: So- oh, right, yeah,
1: right yeah, over the Bridge. Yeah. Um right. I, I that's one of the dives I've done. I've, I've done i thought you of...
0: said I thought you said Englewood and I suppose there's multiple Inglewood.
1: There's an Inglewood with an I. That's, crim-
0: that's like Crimshaw Boulevard, isn't it? The other one.
1: Yeah. It's, uh...
0: <laughs> and that's like pretty I mean that that's been uh, oh, I, I loved rap music growing up. So
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, there's a lot of rap music from yeah, of that. Well I lived in I, LA for a long time. So yeah, but oh, no, right. I grew up in on the east coast. So Hey, hey Aesop yeah,
0: rock. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> I
1: love I love rock. All rock music, but yeah. So <laughs> I uh, but yeah, I, I, I've done a lot of research on the education system and that's a it's model our, the United States education system is modeled after the three tier Prussian model. Of education, mm-hmm. uh, which was born after the Battle of Jena, which was during the Napoleonic Wars. It was in 1807. But that was, was the
0: one when Napoleon got, got his, like, they had to retreat and everything, isn't it, in Palestine? Exactly.
1: They lost yeah, the yeah, Battle yeah. of Jena. and 1799.
0: They fought... I'm going to say 1799.
1: No, it was oh. 1807
0: oh eight oh right okay much later seven. anyway
1: okay yeah cl- uh, yeah not that far but yeah 1807 <laughs> so they, like uh, the they lost the battle but they realized they lost the battle because the the soldiers were dissonant they they had rebelled mm-hmm. and they realized they rebelled because they were critical thinkers and so they decided that they needed mm-hmm. to establish an education system that bred mind they literally said mindless obedient soldiers I mean that would be the translation mindless obedient soldiers and so they designed this three-tier Prussian model of education and that model of education got exported to the United States a lot of people point to John Dewey I go a little further back I would start with Wilhelm Wundt Uh, Wilhelm Wundt was known as the father of psychology uh, and he I, I always point this out. This It doesn't prove that he was, you know, uh, advancing the uh, Illuminati agenda, but he is a descendant of Raphael. He was known as Raphael in the Illuminati. Uh, so he, he does have those connections. And then he was, of course, part of the Leipzig uh, University. And he himself had no formal education, formal training, but he was the really the father of the Ph.D. program. And he uh, he trained. uh, Who was it? Like uh, Pavlov under him. Of course, Dewey, Stanley G. Hall uh, and of course, William James, who was the first Ph.D. student. And William James is known as the father of American psychology. And really exported uh, that system, along with, of course, uh, James, uh, James Dewey, uh, mm-hmm. who is uh, uh, very much, uh, uh, sorry, John Dewey, who is very much instrumental in uh, crafting the, the model of the education system that we have in the United States now. And John Dewey w- uh, was a co-author of the Humanist Manifesto. So uh,
0: what, which, what what years of this? Is this like mid-1800s?
1: This would be... Uh, I think it's around like 1880. Was Bill von Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay.
0: Leipzig. Okay. That makes sense. Because I, I I I'm I'm not sure if we talked about this before, but I did a load of research about. Um... How the German model was being idolized by um, Harvard and others during yes. the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties, and the president of Harvard was just in completely in love, and they were they they were writing long long essays on how they really need just to adopt Germans. Look, the British and and the Americans, we 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 just don't know it on this front, and we should we should we should look to them. Um, and it's kind of a lurch towards the world wars. I found I I thought I felt like. Well, like psychologically, in a sense, very much
1: so, because there is a strong connection between uh, the psychologists, right? These Ph.D. uh, students of Wilhelm Wundt and then the Tavistock Institute and the Tavistock Institute was originally created around uh, 19. I I think they started gathering the the idea for it around uh, 1911. Uh, 1912 was certainly when they. Uh, accompanied, oh. It was a uh, uh, William um, wow. uh, Masterman was appointed to helm this. Uh, it was called the British Propaganda Bureau, and it was at the Wellington House. And the the it was called the British Propaganda Bureau because always in the name of quote unquote defense. Right, uh, the Germans had a propaganda bureau. And so they say. Well, we need to craft a propaganda bureau. <laughs> yeah, one of,
0: one of one of the people who worked at the German propaganda bureau, if I if I remember correctly, was Nahum Goldman, one of the founders of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? That's about 1917. No, yeah. no before 19. Yeah, no, but it had to be before. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 I don't know yeah. what year it was in, in Germany, but yeah, he was. It was definitely before. And so they had this uh, British propaganda bureau at the Wellington House, and it was, of course, you know. The, the typical kind of players were involved in a lot of the funding for it. You know, it was Lord Alfred Milner, uh, uh, Rothmere, mm. Northcliffe. Uh, the the Royal Crown was very involved. Uh, I I, the, I believe the Rockefellers and Rothschilds had a uh, you know some involvement as well. And uh, then they the you know, one of the first things they did was they brought over. They had a meeting with twenty five uh, very well known literary. Uh, you know, figures at the time. Uh, so it was people like, of course, H. G. Wells, and uh, uh who else was involved? Uh, Chesterton. um So some very prominent figures. Uh, Rudyard Ki- Kipling, who's a huge favorite of mine. If yeah, my yeah, he's amazing. Isn't he wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah, but amazing.
1: He, he actually did not make that meeting, but he was definitely he was still part of the whole operation. And what they did was they crafted uh, 1600 pamphlets. And books uh, between them to create propaganda to garner uh, acquiescence from the American-British population. So was
0: was Gunga in... just propaganda? You're telling me?
1: Yeah to uh, to get course, them. Of course he was. Engage yeah. in uh, World War One on the side yeah. of the British. And yeah, of yeah. course, from there, Go,
0: start... oh my god! I I just didn't think I did. I didn't even when when I, I with Gunga Din going out and and giving water to the men on the battlefield who are uh, 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 thirsty and he didn't. And it's only him, only him out there. Everybody mm-hmm. else is dying and deserting them, but he's there. Din din Gunga Din giving giving them the water. I yeah, I should I should have seen it. Really, should not I? <laughs> totally.
1: Yeah. yeah. So they had a. And then they start. they headed up what was called the Creel Commission. So this was George Creel who was appointed to helm this commission. And uh, George Creel appointed uh, Edward Bernays, of course, the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, whose nephew is the founder of uh, today's modern propaganda machine, also known as Netflix. Uh, And he was actually, uh, he went to my alma mater. He's a graduate from Hamilton College. And uh, so it was Edward Bernays, along with Walter Whitman, who was a journalist, to Mm -hmm. help this Creole Commission. And the the job of the Creole Commission was to create propaganda for the United States um, to uh, get, you know, to change the sway, the populace on the side of engaging in the world on the side of the British. And this was a very tall order because they had to very closely advise and, uh, you know, guide Woodrow Wilson, who ran on the campaign that he would not engage in war.
0: No, so had to really
1: shift yeah the narrative.
0: which is which is the manipulation that you see like um the oss and like like really harnessing at the end of of world war ii as well where you, they, they're pushing yeah. towards and from... was
1: very instrumental in that as well uh they mm-hmm. were totally engaged in propaganda for they were behind actually and so was creel behind that whole what i forgot what the campaign was called like stop the i forgot what it's called but it's it's the uncle sam like we want you mm-hmm. you know all of the the pictures that they did for that yeah so and that was very much george creel of course ended up creating stop, the hun? <laughs> uh, I, totally stop like, them
0: hun oh <laughs> uh,
1: yeah but he of course then created a fi- film commission like he started he went into the film industry uh, of course to yeah. create more propaganda um So, yeah, so they but I I always think that this is so interesting because it was during that time, during World War One, when they were trying to advise Wilson uh, that they they weaponized the term isolationist, because Mm -hmm. I remember when Ron Paul was running and he was very popular with, you know, the the political right. You know, he was saying all the things that they that really resonated for them. But the one thing that they were able to uh, weaponize against him was his foreign policy. So they would tell him that he, you know, they would say he was a crazy isolationist and we can't have, you know, him running our foreign policy. And I remember even my father, he would tell me that. He was like, oh, Ron Paul gets a lot of things right. But, you know, his foreign policy is just looney tunes. I mean, we can't have that. That's just crazy.
0: Yeah. I got I got <laughs> memories of my parents saying stuff that now I realise is just them repeating what they heard on the news. You know, that's just it. It,
1: it totally. And but I thought it was so interesting because I had friends. I remember I, I dated a guy at the time who was like a hardcore Ron Paul fan.
0: And, <laughs> yeah. Had a Ron Paul hat and a little a few badges around the place. And, uh. and my oh, dad wow. was
1: like, you can't listen to these crazy people. <laughs> I mean, they're just Looney Tunes. And I'm like, <laughs> and in hindsight, I'm like, didn't George Washington warn us against the two party system? And his reason for it was that it was a loophole for foreign entanglements. And where are we mm-hmm. today? Yeah, that's a that oh, was his reason a... for it because he said that it was. Yeah, he was
0: hard. a clever one, wasn't he? He was a he was a. Well, I think, I mean,
1: I can't, I don't know for sure. I'm certainly, I certainly wasn't there, but I I think it's because he, he was a Mason and he watched the French revolution and he watched the infiltration of uh, the Illuminati in the Masonry. Mm. And a lot of how they infiltrated was kind of this Hegelian dialectic, uh, you know, manipulation. And Uh. I think he saw that and, was like we we can't do that. That's that's he he was trying to warn of the danger. He actually used the book. It's a uh, uh John Robeson's book Proof of the Conspiracy hmm. uh, which was published in uh, 1789 um or 79- 1798 wow. book. But it was yeah, and it was an admission of like he was an insider and George Washington used that book as evidence that the Illuminati was trying to infiltrate and to warn the American public of the dangers of the Illuminati infiltration. And,
0: <laughs> and everybody worships George Washington to this day, but no one listens to the words he said.
1: <laughs> Say that again?
0: Everybody worships Washington to this day, but no one listens to the words that he said. It,
1: exactly. It's so true. And Jefferson yeah. used the book, "Proof: uh, The Code of the Illuminati, to warn the public.
0: Wow. And, this, and that
1: book was published the same year so yeah that's
0: some that's some amazing stuff that's some of what i when, when you were speaking then and you were talking about if you if if people are watching the video version and they're seeing my face get all really excited while you're talking about <laughs> a certain period of time now like that, that those are my excited looks if you can't tell are <laughs> yeah, yeah. like oh whoa, yeah she's talking <laughs> about 1910 and 1911 that's my you know i i've done a lot of research in all of these different areas but there's this one area that ties the two up that, that 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 would would you know i really need to investigate and i'm touching on it at the moment um with an article i'm writing uh that i'm 150 years ahead of anybody else on, on writing this article i reckon okay um, Yeah, oh, it's amazing. It's an amazing story, an amazing story. I think, um, and I'll I'll say part of it, because it would be almost impossible for people to, to... to you, people could go and um, re- watch something about him. On I got um, a thing called Controller Virus on um, uh, which I I it was my first attempt at making a documentary and saying, okay, give me see if I, anybody can help me make a documentary. But people enjoyed it. They just they just no there was no one there that kind of helped me. And I was doing loads of other things at that time, and my life was changing. But really, it looked back at 1910 and 1911, and the people who were involved in the Manchuria. Outbreak of the plague uh, that killed about sixty thousand, and it was the first time that the China had done an international symposium. The guy who actually run the symposium was a guy called Doctor Wu, and Doctor Wu was um, the guy who invented the N ninety five mask. He was the guy who fought that up. In actual fact, nearly all virus uh, protocols, um, a lockdown protocols, that uh, look for the vaccines all are really here in 1910, 1911, because Dr. Strong got sent by the Rockefeller Institute by America. He was studying in Manila, got sent across to be the American representatives with his uh, assistant. Um, uh, The Rockefellers uh,
1: tried to uh, set up in, uh, I'm not sure which, what part of China I'm blanking, but they tried to set up a, a whole uh like university system to uh, implement the allopathic method in China. It right. didn't work because after the first one they they it became too expensive yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, it didn't take off but yeah they and I was very curious about that because china China uses you know uh Chinese medicine is you know very much an ancient practice and very different from this
0: well 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 still 1910 1911 is important for that too within china um as this is happening there's a there's a whole there's a whole bundle of things just after the symposium happens the um the last emperor china uh, of china is installed on the throne by the japanese so it's the japanese take control of china really political control and nice. just after and all of these people are suddenly like working under a different kind of slightly different system and they start to knock out Ch- want and, and want to knock out Chinese traditional methods out of society because they're getting orders from the Japanese and the Japanese are about to start. Testing on everybody, they're going to use the Chinese as guinea pigs, and so the Russians send a guy called Zabolotny, who's the first guy who found some sort of like a vaccine for TB by giving himself TB, I think, something like that. Or no, it was typhoid, sorry, or something along those lines, anyway. But it was something he gave himself a vaccine and he didn't get ill, and he claimed that he had he had he had um, he had gave himself the disease and he, he he didn't get affected. But he was uh, the head the women's institute in st petersburg and he was a big player he wrote loads about um what to do in uh, when there's an outbreak and, and to lock down and do all of those things well at the same time reginald farrar shares a name with jeremy farrar got sent from england and i think he's the illegitimate great grandfather of jeremy farrar and that it's kind of hidden from history um, and Reginald Farrar, uh, he basically examined what was going on in uh, Manchuria and Futitian uh, was a place which had a full lockdown where they sectioned it up into areas and people had to have set, set passes to pass through and there was loads of like lockdown mechanisms he examined and he presented his findings to the Board of London when he got back in detail and they had the questions and answers which is uh, amazing and They all went there with a load of people who were making, like, what was then state of the art vaccination potential vaccinations so they were just testing Halfkins prophylactic was tested on people and only a certain amount of people died so it's okay and it's amazing they were going into prisons and they were saying to condemn men we'll give you a virus and then we'll you try this out and then uh and if you uh if you die it doesn't matter anyway you're gonna die aren't you and so there was just like you know they they were testing on them The Japanese sent Kitasato Shibasaburo, who was one of the most evil men in history. He, at one point later, once the Japanese took over, they they, uh, cordoned off an entire Chinese village, gave them plague, and anybody who tried to leave got shot. So they all just saw, just to watch how without food and with Play how people were going to just be fighting and ripping each other apart. Kittasata Shabasaburo used to do the most evil tests on people. I mean, really like pre-Nazi, taking skin off people, stuff, you know, really horrible human being of the highest order. But in 1911, all these people met together and looked at the whole of what had happened in this Manchurian outbreak, where out of the 60,000 people who died, there there was only three who got the virus and survived or got the virus got the plague and survived it was a pneumonic plague um so it was only three who survived and they survived really bad defects like they had really bad problems afterwards um and it wasn't it was described as not proper life but that period 1910 1911 there's so much going on There's this whole idea of of a whole new world that they can create with medicine and science and all of these things that are happening all at once and i think it it partly comes with the creation of that explosive sort of creation the creation of big explosions bigger explosions and that comes with it but when you talk about that period my eyes just like i I, it's like i'm on heroin because i want to know about that period um and it was a really special uh, period you're talking about uh, as well that, you know, the founding fathers, um, basically warning of the infiltration of things like the Illuminati and uh, is the round table groups that got created during this period. Are they just the product of that warning not being heeded?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think that they're a product of the warning not being heated. I mean, I think that they're uh, a mechanism. You know, I see the round table groups as a way of it. it, To me, it's very much like the like the mafia. You know, it's a way of diverting the the tasks and the attention. You know, the 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 mafia boss is not going to be the hitman, but he's got a bunch of people doing his bidding for him. So, you know, if, if they're going to come after anyone, they're obviously not going to come after him because they can't pin it on him. So I that's kind of how I see the roundtable groups. It's a, it's a way of being able to divert and create very intricate webs. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, they do this all in secrecy. And uh, so then they're able to, you know, execute their, their plans with a lot of leverage of power. Part of the secrecy is not just... Uh, you know, to withhold the information. It's also a lever of power. And actually, Adam Weishoff talked about that because he, he was a student of Ingolstadt. He was a, a Jesuit, a Jesuit scholar. And he, would talk, he said that he modeled the Illuminati structure after the Jesuits because that's why it had the hierarchical structure because he said that uh, secrecy was one of the ways that he could uh, entice people to feel a sense of clout and importance And also to buy in, Um, so that's I think that's part of the reason it's not. I think a lot of people think it's just to withhold the information so more can get done, but I think it's actually to uh, hold a lever of power over somebody because people want to feel like they're important and they're part of the the in group. So you
0: seem to you seem to have such a vast ray of knowledge. It's just like about history, which is just like fills in lots of the gaps of what I I don't you know i don't know and um is that only over the past few years have you been reading about this stuff for a long time or is this just like are you uh because uh, i i think i'm a bit of a like a sponge for certain knowledge because passion sure. have you got that is that is that what it is
1: yeah and it really has been the past two years i mean as i said i was i was pretty normie prior to 2020 you know i was never i was never on the like quote-unquote left you know i was never like a crazy Marxist but I was definitely you know I bought into all the uh, you know I, I used to watch
0: Stephen Colbert I used to watch Stephen
1: Colbert oh did you I, I yeah I had a lot of friends who did and uh yeah I actually in, when I was in college and right after college I mean I was an actress and I was a uh, in the film industry and so I had really tried very hard to become like a not even a Democrat, just on the left, because I thought that I would have more friends, I'd be more accepted, life would just be easier. Uh, So I really tried. And what I found was the more that I tried, the further away from that line of thought I became, because I kept asking questions, and the more absurd the narratives became to me, the, the less justification for that line of thought there was. So I actually became more entrenched in my thoughts the harder I tried not to. Um, but yeah, no, I was very, I very much toed the, what you would call establishment, you know, American Republican narrative. And yeah. I started this podcast actually with the whole, you know, if we could just vote harder, get the right people in office, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we could fix this whole mess. And uh, I started off, I remember I used to say that, I thought that the Republican Party was behaving as controlled opposition for the left. And, uh, you know, it took me not very long before I changed it to, no, the Republican Party was created to be controlled opposition for the left. Mm -hmm. That that was my design. And uh, I very much see that now. So I think, no, I really was, I just started diving in when I realized how much I was being lied to about everything. And because I am such a curious person, I... I want to know why, and I want to know what is the truth, and I don't claim to yeah. have all the answers, but I'm also really interested in, you know, most of my early academic and just my childhood was really seeped in studying human nature, you know, mm. I was very fascinated by, I read Freud when I was nine, I did not independent oh, wow. study. yeah, I, I read was reading
0: the- Judge Dredd, man. I don't
1: even know what that is.
0: <laughs> 2000 AD Judge Dredd or oh, back in Mega City One. Uh in the future. Anyway, go on. Sorry.
1: <laughs> um, Definitely well, comic
0: books. Sounds not interesting. Freud.
1: Okay, well, it sounds interesting also, but no, I was reading Freud. I I read Greek mythology as a very like very little kid. I was always reading like biographies. Um, and then in high school, I wrote 285-page theses on dream analysis. My mentor was wow. the founder of the Association for the Study of Dreams. I did an independent study in philosophy. I did, like, whenever I had the opportunity to do independent research, I did, like, I studied the pre-Socratics. I, I did, did a study on the trial of Socrates. My school actually published that. They published my dream work uh, as well. So I just had a really wow. strong interest in human nature and like why people do what they do. And when 2020 happened, I realized how much I was being lied to about everything. I just wanted to understand how did we get where we are today? Because it's really people. I mean, people want to point pin the tail on the donkey, but the reality is it's not like you can point the finger at one person. I mean, maybe there's a similar line of thought that permeates through But I don't think you can say, oh, it's all the fault of John D. Rockefeller. Like, it doesn't work that way. You know, he was definitely, I don't think he was a good guy in a lot of respects. I mean, he was definitely responsible for a lot of the, uh, you know, things that we see today that I don't look too favorably upon. But I don't pin everything on him. It's not... And he's just one example, you know, you can say Kissinger, the list goes on and on, but, you know, or the Illuminati or whoever, it doesn't work that way. What, how it works is you have ideas that get, uh, you know, weaponized and targeted through, uh, you know, math line actions, literally. And you also have people who are, I, they're, they're sifting through, everybody's just trying to live their life. And I think that people get they get wrapped up in belief systems and that can create polarity and it it advances agendas and but it really it's the people that have led us to where we are today and so Mm -hmm. that's what i wanted to study and i wanted to understand how did that happen and what can we do to preserve the free will of humanity because really that's what i see as being at stake
0: i i i have a i have a fear that free will is is a difficult one because we uh, um cede our us our well over we we concede Ew. all of the time to the other side and i was trying to describe it to someone um recently where i was saying you know i used i ended up actually using jordan peterson as an example because yeah. they were saying why Why do these people join cults, join lodges, join all of these different yep. organizations? Um, is it just, you know, are they all like um, satanic? Are they all this? Are they all that? And it's like, you know, there's, there's human dynamics of yep. just wanting to belong and exactly. feeling out of place and when you go into a place where you find like-minded people like i mean i i, I my my godson come over earlier um and his dad is just like one of my best friends. He loves fishing to a degree that I can't even imagine. I just <laughs> when when I look watch him watching fishing shows, I have no idea what's going on in his brain. It just looks fantastic. He's uh, completely <laughs> excited by just watching a ship on water and a guy going like this on the on a, 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 a <laughs> but he's in- in- enthralled and he's looking at all of the little gadgets. He's just like well. Oh. You know, it's just what, what, what in, uh, in falls people, you don't know. But when you get into a group of fishermen, then if you've got like a a load of people who are all wanting to be part of this gang or suddenly find a group of people who are like-minded akin, have roughly the same background, roughly the same education. Um, they feel more comfortable around. They could, they also, you know, pat each other on the back, give each other good things. Yeah. It's all very nice, but there's one, there's always, uh, a person, uh, that needs to lead, needs to step out in front, and right. that's what drives the evil in our society to a, a, an extent. But it drives everything in our society is the fact that the one person, usually the greediest or or the, the, the deemed, the more powerful than most of the group. So the reason why I used Jordan B. Peterson as an example was, if you, when we you watched all of his um uh bible lectures he, and oh, a... I don't
1: watch, that's that's the one i didn't finish but oh, that right, was right. when i that was when i started to uh shift yeah, my yeah, yeah, views yeah. on him so <laughs> yeah well, but i've well, watched some of them i have yeah, yeah. he, he
0: the, the 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 crowd the people he speaks to are in awe of him at the end, Aww. you know, is they they they're just in awe of him. So he's like, if he's like uh, up there's like this being that scares these people who are down below who come. And what these people do is they submit to this person. They submit to this uh, this power that this person gives in a public space with a lot of people. And that is how a cult is formed. That's how a cult is driven on. Is that it just needs the one because that person at the top can believe his own rhetoric and believe his own power and believe that it makes him more powerful to know this information and what he's seeing in return is power is an increased power people submitting underneath and bowing their head and saying oh, i'm i'm you know you you're so you're so knowledgeable i'm going to listen to you more i'm going to you know we we are so used to to bending over to someone who's who's is more superior in a way that we don't even notice, and it's often it's a starstruck, you know, especially on the independent media. I, I when RFK Junior. come along, everybody got starstruck for a bit, and yeah. now they're all complaining about how he's an anti uh, he's a he's anti I suppose he's still an anti-Semite, really. Right. <laughs> because it's oh, Semite, so it don't it don't matter anyway. Yeah. Um, I I would say anti-Canaanite because they're all Canaanites around that region. You don't want to trust them. Fifty to sixty percent Canaanites, both Jewish people and uh, it is genetically, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but but they, you know we always we're looking for the leader, and when I mean, the leader that, appears, that yeah. leader's ideology is what we follow. And so the people, the names you mentioned there, the people who just step out with a good understanding of ha- the ideology of power, I suppose.
1: I absolutely agree with that assessment. I think that that is right on target. I think what happens is that it creates Gnostic cults. So mm. essentially, you know, oh, it's
0: this is what this person was speaking about. She was speaking about Gnostic cults.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: How interesting. Yeah, that that's that's really how I see it. Um, I think that it's it's not the cults. And I think that this is I think this has always been true of humanity. I mean, that that this has always existed, but I think that it has become much more codified and much more weaponized since the Frankfurt School. You know, the Frankfurt School, they they took the identity politics and really they they carved that um. Uh, you know, that strategy of using identity politics in order to create factions and groups and to strip people of individual identity in order to have people, they prey on people's desire to belong, the the social nature of humanity in order to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so they create these groups. And uh, you know, of course, this is uh, I talk about the Hegelian dialectic a lot, and a lot of people, you know, have heard thesis, antithesis, synthesis or problem-reaction-solution, and, you know, the, those can explain it, but really his wording was actually, he said, abstract, negative, concrete. And it was uh, really the thesis-antithesis-synthesis came from John Gottlieb Fichte who he was very much influenced by. Uh, What's John the
0: original? Fittke. Sorry, I, I I tried to remember oh, it. The
1: thesis-antithesis-synthesis get... yeah, yeah, is yeah. what uh, John Gottlieb Fichte yeah. yeah, yeah. Co- Modified, it was a uh, taken after it was his interpretation of Kant's dialectic mm-hmm. right you know like a, a Plato had the uh, allegory of the cave he had the mm-hmm. uh, intelligible realm the dividing line the inintelligible realm right the people watching everything on the shadows uh, the shadows on the wall in the cave and then of course the inintelligible realm is out there the world outside and that really I would say was one of the first uh, really strong codifications of this dialectic and then Kant had his which was uh the thesis and synthesis he I don't know if he actually coined it that way but that was how Ficka uh, interpreted it and that Hegel felt that that was too abstract and it really when he says it's too abstract I think what he meant was it was too intellectual and he wanted something that could be used as methodology uh and you know he had his uh Uh, science of what was the science of phenomenology which is where he talks a lot about this and it really he was trying to create a methodology for advancing the historicity of man and the historicity of man for him would advance towards an omega point where uh, for him he believed that the state equal god and uh, so you know all the power should be in this all-consuming state which would you know, Lord over us and mm-hmm. So what he said abstract Negative concrete the reason I bring this Up a lot is because the negative Is the, the term in German Was afhaven which means uh, It's an oxymoronic term That means to lift up and preserve while Simultaneously tearing down and canceling mm. And then of course from the Frankfurt school we get Haven to culture Which is cancel culture And I, mm. I don't think I need to explain that Most of us are familiar with cancel culture these days <laughs> Um, and so but they really were masters of this stripping people of individual identity and creating this uh Haven culture that was tied to identity, what we call identity politics now. And I think part of why they did that is because of exactly what you're talking about. I'm sorry, this is so long winded, but it's it circles back to exactly oh, what you're describing because i think as human beings we do have a sense of wanting to belong we and and it's survive for survival purposes because we are social creatures and in you know paleolithic man if he was isolated and left to fend for himself the chances of him surviving were very slim you know the that's why being ostracized feels like a physical threat oftentimes you know when we're rejected. We actually feel it as if it were in danger. And it's because, you know, our emotions and our consciousness or our, I I should just say our technological capabilities may have advanced (laughs) over the past, you know, uh, however long man has been on this earth, but our biology hasn't changed all that much. And so we are still hardwired, very similar to the way that we were even thousands of years ago. And so that feeling is still, oh my gosh, I'm in danger. And so they have capitalized on this and exploited this in order to create these groups. And then what do you have with these groups? You have they weaponize compassion because then you have this, you know, uh, mama bear that surges as the, oh. the Gnostic leader. Of Gloria
0: numbers. Steinem. You're talking about Gloria Steinem and fem- feminism. You're talking about Gloria Steinem, she's a, uh, a, cult. a CIA construct who doesn't, who constantly changes uh, like like morphs and transmorphs her, her being. Oh, now she's a bunny who's a reporter doing an expose and suddenly feminism dawned upon me. And now I am going to, c- to push out all of the uh, the voices of feminism and just just be this blind. Planned version of this it's overarching. Yeah, yeah. And and right. she makes Ms. Magazine and becomes the authority. And all of the, the radical feminists are pushed out of the feminist movement very cleverly, very, very um very much like it's a CIA program run by someone who was working for the CIA for 10 years until she set up the magazine and then she wasn't working for the CIA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so That's yeah, right. the Mama Bear. Yeah, yeah. Perfect you're okay. describing her.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly right. So they weaponize the compassion because what happens when you look at uh, when you look at the trait of compassion, typically there's I always I talk about something called like the I call it the compassion traps that they create. And you look at this, the trait of compassion, and that's typically we identify that with the we associate it with women tend to be more compassionate but what is compassion if you look at what compassion actually is i'm not saying men can't be compassionate men absolutely can but typically we uh, you know we associate that with women as being much more compassionate and here's the reason it's because what is compassion we often think of it as being empathy but it's actually not. It takes mm-hmm. empathy one step further because empathy is identifying with another person's suffering. Even though it's not sympathy, you may not have experienced it yourself, but you you feel for that person, for their suffering. But then compassion is the desire to want to alleviate that suffering, the desire to want to you know remove that suffering for, for that person. And that the reason women do tend to be more compassionate is because they're compassionate to, to their offspring. It's it's a again, it's survival. It's to protect their offspring. But what happens when you you present a threat to their offspring? They're not compassionate to you. They become vicious, ferocious mama bears. And that's what happens with these groups. So you now have these figures that they're these Gnostic figures. You know, they're the all knowing. They're the expert, the authority who preside over this group. And now they protect their group and so everybody outside the group becomes the other they're they're the enemy and so they now protect and it's much easier to get people to fight against each other in groups than it is if we all retained our individual identity and you see this through all sorts of you know yes the cia definitely did this with what what's the biggest division we could create is between men and women so of course Mm -hmm. the feminist movement they're going to otherize men men are Mm -hmm. the enemy so now you have this uh, hero, this leader, this, you know, essentially this Gnostic demiurge. The that
0: patriarchy! Has- that's what it is. They And they talk, that's what they, that's, they, I, I mean, that's what Camille um, oh, P- Paglia, you, you don't pronounce the G. Um, uh, Camille P- Palia says, you know, they, they, um, they 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 use fuzz words fuzzy words like patriarchy that mean nothing oh, yeah. but it's to it's to be able to offset their own uh shame and not achieving
1: well yeah i think i think it does a bunch of things you know so a lot of these words are typically um they're signals to the initiate so you know it's a way of signaling like hey these this means you're one of us you they use these words but it's also a way of creating the the drawing the lines this is our group you're outside yeah. of the group this is who's inside our group um and then of course it's a way of demonizing you know it's uh the evil vitriarchy. but i agree with you it's a, it is to uh be it, it is a way of uh you know justifying their lack of uh I don't even I wouldn't even. Well, that's, that's, that's
0: Camille um, uh, Paglia, who, who says, you know, I kind of there with
1: her. OK, yeah, I don't even think it's so much about achievement. It's more about um, because I think that's kind of a false uh, premise that's been projected onto people. Right. Because what is achievement? Who Who's deciding yeah. the standards for what it is to achieve? And I think yeah. a lot of that was even a feminist construct. Uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you look at, you know, uh, you look in previous generations, women didn't mark their, uh, their self-worth by how high up the corporate ladder they ranked, you know, yeah, there yeah, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't determined that way. So, and I think there are even still people today, I'll never forget this, actually, when I was, I think I was about six years old, and my father asked me uh, what success meant. And uh, you know, it, it really struck me. I obviously, cause I still remember this conversation and I said to him, well, I said, I think it's very personal. I, I don't think there's like a metric for success because, uh, what success, what might be successful for me might be different for you. It depends on your value. You know, what you, what your values are, what you hold dear. So, you know, some, some woman might determine her measure of success by the family that she's raised. And, uh, you know the uh, the type of children that you know they they grow up to become, or you know how her children grow up, or uh, you know I or the the farm that she's built, or who knows? I I'm you know we we could go on and on with the, all the hypotheticals, uh, but I think it's you know and some other woman might say, oh, I'm successful because I make you know seven figures and I run this corporation, and it's not for me to judge what one person's success versus the other, but I do think that we've you know, there are a lot of narratives constructed around what it means to be successful. And, you know, when in the case of feminism, I think a lot of it, we were sold a lot of lies. You know, mm-hmm. women were sold this lie that you have to, uh, at least, it, you know, what I saw in the United States when you were know, growing up was just like, you have to go to college, you have to get this you know, degree, then you have to get this job and, you know, you have to make this money. Kind of yeah. looks
0: like the standard model. Ooh, yeah, looks
1: right, like and, and in reality, was, was that going to make somebody happy necessarily? And then you're stripping them of these prime fertile years, right? And I mean that literally. I, I do mm-hmm. think that was by design. And that's not to say that you can't build families later. I'm not, the, this whole new manosphere, red pill like what whatever wave of red pill we're on now some people argue with me they tell me it's not really the red pill move. maybe it's not but what i'm seeing i i don't subscribe to that i think it is so toxic mm-hmm. um and you know this idea that we we all need to be trad wives in order to restore humanity i it, it's like okay well who instituted the the version of trad wife that you are saying we should all model and mm-hmm. why are we demonizing healthy you know, flourishing relationships and families, like that's not productive to the flourishing of humanity, right? Like yeah, they, they're yeah, not yeah. the enemy. The people who are in healthy, successful relationships and who are breeding, you know, healthy, successful children, those aren't really our enemy. So why are we <laughs> yeah. attacking? Um, so I, I see that that's not what I'm saying, but I do think that it's just that we've been sold so many lies and a lot of it was designed really just to stunt the progress of humanity i mean progress in the literal sense of the word you know the actual procreation of humanity so. yeah
0: yeah 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 completely i i i feel that there's um there's also a, a, a automatic extreme that people go to once they realize oh well you know the whole world in the future looks like it's going to break down it's going to be dystopia i'm going to move out to the middle of nowhere and hide away um mm-hmm. that's some you know that's one of the many extremes that, that that it doesn't make sense when you actually play through strategy of what happens if society breaks down and you need a social group very close by to survive ensemble because when things properly break down you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere with no protection you <laughs> it's the worst place oh. to be you've got all the food have you or you're self-sustainable for how long <laughs> they're going to take everything but in the same way that's the idea is that we 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 you know we have to we have to fight within our societies so that we can live out in the middle of nowhere if you want to live out in the middle of nowhere you've still got to kind of like be part of society in some way so uh, maybe that's um i think you know when you say trad wife and you go in that and people are going that route and people are going the same with traditional life and trying to get off the grid and stuff uh, There's obviously there's obviously going to be um however much society gets pushed it's obviously going to be some sort of output the other way so it is and it always gets more extreme so i i was thinking when you were saying that about a, a woman who i saw on a tiktok i think it was on a on twitter or something and uh and she was there with a baby wrapped her, and she's giving this whole trad wife speech about how it's the greatest thing ever and she's great and my husband does all of this this because i like it i love it and it's like you know I, I, it is true it's you know uh, there's there's lots to be said about stereotypical sort of relationships. Sure. Man being strong and mm-hmm. women women being less and strong but fruity. <laughs> Where okay. men are, uh, are hairy, <laughs> you know. It's 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 the differences that make make all of the unique bits. But we, I mean, this is all about this is all about homogenization, isn't it? I mean, what we're seeing now. So, okay, right, to to start winding it up, what do you see our future looking like then? What do you see, like, um, I'm not going to say, like, oh, 2030, we're all living in megacities and we're nothing and we're happy and all this. That's just, (laughs) that's ridiculous. Like, that's not going to happen by 2030, obviously. But um, where where do you see us in, like, 2050, 2060? You've got a good understanding of, of... History. Where we by then?
1: So I, you know, I think what they're they're scaring people. Uh, I, I, I hate to put labels, but we'll call them like the Truther or movement, or you know, the quote unquote dissident people. A lot of them are being very. uh I think they're being targeted with this fear narrative that we're all going to be chipped and we will be cyborgs, and you know, I I I don't want to discredit any of that because there's certainly a initiative. I mean, we can just look at, I, I try to point people towards the AI world society that they're building. This is UN 100, the centennial of, uh, because the UN was created in, in nineteen. The Royal
0: Society is so fucking evil.
1: <laughs> so, so evil. evil. So I, evil, I, I full
0: of the most evil people in rooms going meh, yeah me, me, evil things, terrible.
1: I'm with you. I, and I really think they're trying to create a cyber <laughs> Satan. That's at least what it looks like to oh. me. Um, so they, you know, so they're talking about the, and the, you can go on their website. It's all very public. Uh, you know, it's an AI world, AI world society, hence the name. And they're doing it in partnership with Boston global forum, uh, and, uh, You know, this is Michael Dukakis, who was former uh, governor of Massachusetts, and they have a book. It's called the remaking the world, the age of global enlightenment. If that doesn't sound new agey enough for you, just take a read of it. It is a, uh, it's new age merging with AI and uh, technocracy and. Uh, they're using Ukraine as a hub, is what they're talking about. They have a symposium on rebuilding Ukraine after the war, and they're decimating. Mm. We have to rebuild Ukraine to create this oh. AI world society, which is going to be connected to all these smart city grids. And it's very, very dystopian. So I don't want to undermine any of that. However, I think there are a lot of people who are not going to sign up for the Neuralink and the chipping of the brains, and, you know, or even chipping under the hands. I know some people already have, and there's already. But here's the reality, and of course, whatever they can do to create, you know, a cyborg kind of transhuman world leading to post-human, and I mean that literally, there's a handbook, it's called the Handbook of the Post-Human World. So, you know, this is a a real thing that they're trying to foist upon humanity, or post-humanity, I should say, rather. Um, But I think the bigger concern is that is something we're already facing, because they're creating, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with cybernetics, but this is a, a term and a philosophy that has been around for a very long time, way uh, preceding, the, you know, our smartphone technology. And it's this idea of this brain uh, technology interface. And, you know, yes, a lot of the technology that they're working on and that they're trying to uh, foist upon us is very dystopian and very, you know, it's transhuman, like, robot-like. And that's a possibility. However, there's also just how much uh, psychological manipulation is occurring through uh, targeting through our social media interfaces. And the best way that I can explain this is, I remember growing up where, you know, we had magazines and we had film and TV And uh, this is going to sound silly and superficial, but I think most people can relate to this. Uh, Certainly the women, probably even more than the men, but I think men will relate to this as well, Uh, where we had these very kind of uh, Photoshopped images being thrown in our faces, right? It was, you opened up the magazines and there are these supermodels. And yes, we can argue that even outside of them, they were probably beautiful people, but they're, they're completely airbrushed. And, you know, it's just not, it's not even what they look like in their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. However, it was just magazines or an isolated incident when you went to the movie theater or turned on your television screen. And when you stepped out into the world, And even if, uh, particularly for someone like me who lived in New York City and L.A., I would see these people. And the reality is they're most of them are like everybody else. You know, they have their days with their hair in the bun and no makeup. And, you know, they don't look like the images that are presented to us. So we have reality to check against the images that are being presented to us. Mm -hmm. And that was very, I I think, essential to the well-being of humanity, because Mm -hmm. And again I'm I'm being, bringing up a very superficial example but I think it's one we can relate to because we had we had checks and balance against the false reality that was being presented to us. What is happening with us spending more and more time on our screens and you know our social media platform is that we are we're, the lines between reality and virtual reality reality in the physical domain and the virtual domain is becoming increasingly more blurred. And so we're becoming more susceptible and vulnerable to you know really psychological warfare that's being targeted through that. And we don't have as much of a buffer because if you, I think most of us have experienced either a dream or, you know, like a deja vu type experience. Oh my gosh, was that real? Was that not real? Did I live that? And what's now I think starting to happen is, Wait, was that real or was that like, you know, something that happened on Twitter <laughs> like, mm. you know, just for an example. Um, but people are literally arguing with bots and they don't necessarily know they're arguing with bots. Mm. Some people do. Some people still have that discernment. But what happens when now SAG has redone their um you know, their their agreement, they had the strike and people were cheering about it. But I don't think it's a great deal. Basically, what it is, is your name, uh, like license and likeness, right? Um, and so they're incentivizing people. And I think a lot of people are going to sign up for this. They're incentivizing people to give up their likeness in wow. order to, because they get paid on it and they get paid on the residuals. So now AI, it's machine learning. A lot of people talk about the singularity is near, or we're already in a simulation. I don't really think we are, but I think they're trying to push us into a singularity. And the more, I don't think that there really is sentience. I think there's no evidence to point towards the sentience of, you know, AI. Yeah. Yeah. However, the machine learning is advancing, and it's being the input is being increasingly exponentially fed. And I yeah. think what we're going to see, you have now like. I posted a video of like a singer who was completely AI generated. Now, if you watch Mm -hmm. her, you can kind of tell it's not quite real. But what happens when we're so used to reading what ChatGPT wrote, or we're used to seeing things that were created by AI images, and we start to have trouble discerning what is real, what's not real. Mm -hmm. And that to me... I think we're going, we're increasingly in danger of entering a metaverse. It's not quite the what you know, it's not necessarily a world of totally robots. While that concern is there, obviously, you know, they were already saying how I mean, we already go to you know, Amazon one is like eradicating, you know, any checkout counters and you just go in. I, I I walked into a gas station that had this. They had all these cameras that watch you and then they see you pick stuff up, you go up to the register, it's already calculated what you purchased. Right. So, I mean, a lot of this technology and infrastructure is already here, and now with what they're doing with biometric data and collecting it, I mean, we see the the 2050 uh, EMT, they're using all this bio, uh, biometric data uh, in the name of healthcare. So, all of that is there, but I'm really concerned about now we have autonomous drones so that are being that uh, U.S. military, the Pentagon has said that autonomous drones can decide whether or not to kill humans. Um, so I, I'm not painting a gray picture here, but this is kind. These are the kind of things I am pretty concerned about uh, mm-hmm. moving forward, and and again, this will really uh, further strip away our freedoms, our you know, potential for being put into some sort of a, you know, like China's digital, you know, social credit system. Uh, I think that'll be further accelerated by a lot of these blurs of reality. And it does take away from, you know, what does it mean to be human? So I, not to be all doom and gloom, I still think that we have a lot of potential to derail their plans. In fact, I do believe that we have derailed a lot of their plans, uh, I think we've at least slowed them down or made them have to pivot. <laughs> and uh, so I what I just encourage people to do is you talked about like people going off the grid. I the way I kind of look at it is I think the the cities, people are being pushed into the city to create the, you know, the digital uh, prisons. And I think that the people who go off grid are going to be a lot of these the serfs, um, the slaves because they're going to have to, you know, work the land. And I think it's going to be a way of kind of enslaving them if we even have anything real left, because of course they're, you know, all the geoengineering and now they're creating fake food. They're at an alarming rate of what Mm -hmm. is being converted into fake food. Um, So, you know, there, there's debate on that. Will you even be able to farm? Um, So, I, but the reason I brought that up is because I do advocate, at least in the short term, whatever self sufficiency people can have, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, whatever personal sovereignty you can retain. I don't think people should isolate themselves. If they go off the grid, I love the idea of building homesteads. You have like minded communities, you know, you have, uh, you know, communication systems established that are off of the electronic or, uh, you know, cyber things like satellite kind of communications and, uh, you know, really where you can have reliance networks that are built within. So I think that, I think people taking their children out of, you know, indoctrination camps and homeschooling them, teaching them practical tools too, you know, as a, I'm obviously a lover of information. (laughs) And so, you know, I think, sure, teach them information, history, uh obviously the foundational math skills and if they're they're gifted push them in that arena challenge them there but really practical skills you know things that are that we are that we laugh at today like home ec uh you know men learning how to build things um you know give them the foundational tools so that even if they're not going on to get advanced degrees in uh, applied mathematics they know basic math they know without punching it into a calculator you know, mm-hmm. they know basic geometry so that they have visual spatial skills when they go out into the world. You know, people think geometry is just a list of proofs and, you know, uh, you know, al- uh, um, yeah, algorithms and uh, equations. But it's not. It's it's really viewing the world and being able to adjudicate like, will something fit here? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. can I uh, can I move this couch into this corner that that's a lot of geometry and it, it's, it really can be hands on practical uh, tools for them, uh, navigating the world because we don't know, you know, we just don't know what the future will be. And if people are locked into a digital prison and something malfunctions there, you're going to want people who can mm-hmm. do real hands-on things. So I, I still advocate for that. Whatever people can do to buy physical books, I advocate that. Uh, so they can't just manipulate. Uh, you know, the, the Constitution is online, our, our United States Constitution. And you go, look, and they, they, they tweak things. They, they edit it. Uh, the Bible is online. And, of course, they tweak it. And, uh, you know, regardless of one's worldview, I recommend everybody have their children read the Bible. Because, you know, our founding, uh, the United States founding fathers were not all Christian, contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, and most of them had no formal education, but they had all read the Bible and if you look at the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist papers, that was considered fourth grade reading level at the mm. time. Now I send like a paragraph of that to people I consider very intelligent and erudite today. And they, they, they're they like, this is over of their heads. And it's because they don't have the foundational tools. You know, we're not taught the tri- trivium anymore, which is just the grammar, of mm-hmm. logic, and rhetoric, which I think if yeah, people yeah. were just given that, they would be so much better off and we would be in a much better uh position to fight against a lot of this uh globalization uh centralized uh world governing body that they're trying to push us into and the uh, really i think the world religion they're trying to push us into i think is an ai religion that that's what it looks like mm. i think it looks like a cyber satan to me um anyway that was a lot i don't know if it answered anything but those are no kind of, no it did it, i
0: i mean um wow though i, I think there needs to be um Definite what well, I agree completely with what you say about like if you build something in the middle of nowhere, if you want to get off grid. You get off-grid together. It's never really off-grid. You create your own grid. And that Mm -hmm. grid has got to be really strong as well. It's got to be something where everybody's basically under pressure. You'll know where you're at. That's when it's important. You know, the rest of the time you can get on with the stuff. But when it's under pressure, because like you say, uh, the the, the tests of creating these... um, a mega city cyber gulag sort of infrastructure it's going to be um both trial and error so there's going to cool. be yeah there's going to be moments where the something collapses in a way i mean i know i know around I, I live in the city and i know that um some of the people around here would turn rough pretty quick if they didn't have enough food really rough pretty quick um there would be there would be death <laughs> there would be death for yeah, anywhere yeah. um and that does branch out so you need to build a community I, I again i i for me i live in an area where i know everybody around here but mm-hmm. i also know that they are not ready for what could happen and could be round yes. the corner they are so far from being prepared in
1: um Or even anyway. aware that there's a possibility they need to be prepared. That's yeah, what, I... and
0: what you're talking about the bi- with the Bible is just like uh, classical ag- allegories and fables have been taken exactly. out of our society for a reason. Just keep us. And, and th- I, I say to people that, that I remember that specifically when I must have been about, about probably five, maybe younger, that we were told by a teacher that they had changed a clerk curriculum oh curriculum took a couple of times (laughs) to say it it. i deal with words but yeah they they changed the curriculum and uh they were going to be taking out um roman and greek uh, stuff out of it completely uh we were going to learn about kings and queens of england instead and we'd learn about the elites and the monarchy and all of their shiny goods and how cool it was when they took people to battle and how funny some of them were when they went mad and they killed a load of people. Ho 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 So yeah, and what we we uh, when you say taking kids out of school, I mean the school systems that takes a lot. Like that, that takes you have to really be brave. But I, I think there's a load of people I know who are just like. The, all, on normie land but ready to step across that uh, breach within just what it'll be one thing that will happen in society and they'll be like oh no way i'm not having that i, I mean the the one thing that is the most uh as uh, uh, one of the most stable things is that what you were saying earlier in a sense is uh what a woman scorned <laughs> yeah. you don't want to piss them off because they will just say no <laughs> and that means no so so and yeah. Um that that was a, a brilliant conversation. I r- really like talking with you. Um and I do that's,
1: yeah. That's
0: uh, that's okay. I, I I I think that is like you you got so many uh you know so much in areas that I am completely clueless about. Uh I got okay, I got got like a bit of knowledge here and a bit of knowledge there from what I pick up along the way, but I right. kind of like center and focus in on on researching certain things. So I love how broad your interest is. Um There was was one thing you said about dreams. You said a lot about dreams. You said Mm -hmm. loads about dreams. And I suppose, (laughs) do you get people instantly when you talk about your work, you're like studying dreams and stuff like that. Do you get people saying, can you tell me about this dream? Oh, my gosh, my
1: whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so interesting about that is that people don't realize how personal they are.
0: I know, I know, I know. So the other like, day oh. and I want to tell I want to say because I've been thinking about it for a week and a half but but it's, it's, I, I think I'll leave it out just in case everybody you know everybody works out that I'm gonna die
1: <laughs> no I mean we can or and, and we could also yeah. do it offline too it's a totally up to you but I always warn people because people often approach me in like a, a group setting and they're like oh I have this dream can you tell me what it means and you know, I, and that's not actually how I work. I I believe in empowering the dreamer. I want to, uh, that's why I loved Gail Delaney's method. It was the interview method. Really funny side story about this though. Um, when I did my research, uh, the, the my senior year, cause I did two years, I did the junior year and then I did my senior year. My cousin was living with us at the time. And uh, he, you know, he was watching the research that I was doing and he told me, he said, you know, this this dream stuff is, that's great that you're doing that. But I, I think that you're you're gonna grow up to be like, you know, a Diane Sawyer or a female Larry King. And I was so offended. I remember <laughs> like I was like, why? I'm gonna be a neuropsychiatrist. Like I'm gonna get a Nobel Prize because that's when I first presented my research as a junior. Um, I presented it to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City, and they laughed at me. I mean, I was 15 years old, and they said it's a human brain study. You would need an MD, PhD to conduct a study. However, it would most likely, if you were to conduct it, it would most likely uh, garner you a Nobel Prize because I think that the findings would be statistically significant. And I said, "Oh, okay," and uh, you know. Well, sorry. I thought, oh, okay, I'll do that. And uh, and they said, but you probably shouldn't bother because by the time you get your degrees, you know, we'll have already conducted the study. It's a fascinating, you know, research. Oh. Oh. And uh, so I realized in hindsight, it was total just gatekeeping. And it was really kind of ludicrous because, you know, I wasn't going to slice the brains, you know, that and the, it would be the surgeons who would do that, the neurosurgeons. And you don't need to know how to code to run a software company. Right. So I was just, it was my, it was my research that I'd be outlining and I would oversee, you know, and conduct the study, but I wasn't going to be involved in every uh, facet of executing it. Like, you know, doing the brain study itself. So I, it was actually kind of ludicrous to me in hindsight, but at the time I was like, Oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I'll get into a Nobel prize. And it was very naive and very starry eyed of me. Um, But I so I was actually kind of offended when he told me that, and I said, "Why? Why would you say that?" And he said, "Because uh, you know the stream stuff is you know it's interesting, and you're, you're doing great stuff, but really, I think your talent lies in the interview." Mm. And it's I hadn't thought about it mm. for years until I started the podcast, yes. and I was like, sneaky
0: huh. deaky. It happens like <laughs> I mean, that.
1: That's really interesting.
0: And, and definitive. I, I'll, I'll say that that that. My sister told me when I was young that when I was old I'd have a beard, and I got really angry with her. <laughs> oh, really angry! For the people listening to the podcast, it's a lie. It's all a lie. <laughs>
1: it's right. a lie. Yeah. So that Courtney was a-
0: Turner, you're, you're, yeah, quite in- incredible. So, wh- where can people find you? and you know where's the best place because you're obviously on like like Podbean and stuff like that aren't you
1: yeah i'm on everywhere the best place to probably find me is at courtneyturner.com again that's like courtney so it's c-o-u-r-t-e-n-a-y-t-u-r-n-e-r.com and that has links to all of my different platforms i'm on i think 20 different audio i think five or six different video platforms I also have a website called uh, rebels plural for cause for spelled out F O R cause.com. And that's a, that's a festival we do. It's creative artists uniting for the sovereignty of everyone. And it's really just to give a platform and a voice to independent creative artists. Mm. Uh, because, uh, You know, CIA art is really good. I really enjoy it. But I think that the independent uh, voices need to be heard as well. So, uh, (laughs) no, it's true. Part of the reason they're so effective is because it's good. So I really want, unfortunately, though, a lot of the good people who are independent either get co-opted and brought mm-hmm. to the quote unquote dark side, if you will, or they just get silenced and, you know, they really don't get a chance for their voice to be heard. And by voice, I don't just mean, you know, musicians, it's musicians, comedians, it's a, it's a, I do aerial. it's a, you know, the filmmakers, actors, and Uh, studio artists but you know they use art so much for culture creation and social engineering of the masses so it's uh i may not agree with all the voices that are presented but i think it's really important that they have a chance to uh be displayed and so we do that that's rebels for cause we had 53 acts in our last one and it was 26 hours of content so you can watch all of that through the website and uh Yeah, those are probably the best places to find me. And all all the social media, like the Twitter and the Instagram, but you can find that through my website too.
0: Some noble stuff there too. All right. Thank you for coming on the Newspace podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.